I'm Evans Marajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest on this occasion is conductor, composer, and pianist Daniela Candelari. Daniela is going to be talking with us about her grandmother, one of her great mentors, a woman who was an opera singer, who formed a foundation for Daniela's imagination as a musician, and to whose inspiration she returned again and again in her still very young career. We'll be talking about her travels through many countries, the seven languages that she speaks, and her unquenchable passion for music. Daniela, I first got to know your work through uh, the work you do with contemporary opera, particularly things you've done in New York, let's say Prototype Festival, and the many other things you've been involved with. Has contemporary opera been a part of your musical landscape from the beginning of your conducting career, or is this something more recent in your life? Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me uh, for having me today. It's so it's so nice to talk to you and to connect. Uh, during this time. Um, so to answer your question, the con uh, contemporary opera was actually sort of what gave me my first bigger debut in New York City um, with conducting. And it was through the New Works Showcase um, um, produced through Opera America and Trinity Wall Street. And that was in 2016. A year before, in 2015, there was a similar program through Opera America. And Opera America was looking for a pianist who can uh, jump in to do Bernard Rance Vincent, which Julian Walkner was conducting a reading of. And without seeing the score, I said, oh, that sounds like fun. I can do that. And so within uh, 24 hours, I learned the score uh, for the first music rehearsal. And from that moment on, I think a lot of people thought that I was only doing contemporary opera and that that is what I had been prepared to do my whole life. <laughs> uh, but it was really just a coincidence and just saying yes to one engagement. Amazing how that grows out of <laughs> yeah. you know, the serendipity of it as well. But I yeah. mean, clearly you, you had an affinity for new works already. I mean, it was something that, that had been, had it been part of your training that to be engaged with new music as well? Uh, not particularly. So I studied um, I studied in Graz uh, piano performance. I studied university when I was fifteen, and part of that rigorous classical piano performing training was that um, we had to be versed in in many different things. We had to be versed in solo piano literature. Chamber music was a big part of that, and then there was one class in contemporary piano literature after nineteen forty five, and. I took that class. It was with a fantastic pianist, uh, Till Alexander Kerber. Fantastic, fantastic pianist and just a beautiful mind. And I, I remember for that first year, I played a piece by Olivier Messiaen, uh, Il de Feu Deux. And it was an incredibly difficult piece for me at that time. And the last three pages were running 16 notes in retrograde. Oh, <laughs> and no. Because it was for my uh, diploma, for my uh, first, for my bachelor's recital, it had to be performed by memory. So to oh, this wow. day, I don't know how I memorized that. <laughs> but uh, can I wake you up at four o'clock in the morning and ask you to go to the <laughs> piano and you can still play it? <laughs> I think That's I can sign still. Memorization. <laughs> <laughs> I can still remember the opening phrase of that. And uh -huh. I remember that that was the last phrase of the piece because it was 
a mirror retrograde. Um, and, and I think from that moment on through this professor, I found an affinity for contemporary music, but it really wasn't something that um, I consciously seeked out. I think it was music that seeked me out and that I found my way to it. Let's let's turn the timetable back a little bit because you come from a musical family. As mm-hmm. I recall, your grandmother was an opera singer. Exactly. Did you hear her sing when you were a kid at all? I did. She was I was about five and she was just ending her performing career. Um she she retired from theater quite um at a young age. And uh, she devoted herself afterwards to teaching. And um, the last, the the last piece that I saw her in, and sort of it was her last piece, my first piece, uh, was Carmen. Oh and, wow! As yeah, Carmen, or so she was a mezzo. Carmen, as Carmen, she was a mezzo, and of course uh, she was permanent member of the Serbian National Theater in in former Yugoslavia. And the Serbian National Theater worked as a standard ensemble repertoire house in Germany. So you were a mezzo for all. It it did wow. not matter at all. Sort of Fach had very, very little to do. So one day you'd be singing an operetta. The next day you'd be singing Wagner. Yeah. The next day you'd be singing Verdi. The next day you'd be singing Carmen. Exactly. Exactly. And in what's in what city was this? This was in Novi Sad, which is my uh, my birth town, uh, mm-hmm. place where I was born. Um, so yeah, she she would sing Carmen. She would sing uh, she would sing Rosina the next day. Uh, sorry, Rosina. Um, she did Charlotte. It was it was an array of things that she was singing, and it's a it's a fascinating story for me because Carmen was the first show that I saw, first opera that I saw. And I remember at the end of the opera, Carmen gets stabbed and I started sobbing. And my mom kept on sort of trying to calm me down and saying, oh, no, grandma is, you know, going to come and you'll see her and she's alive. And I was just like, no, this is this is horrible. Somebody killed my grandma. This evil man killed her. (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to do. And so when grandma came for her, came for her bow. I thought this is not real. There was somebody else. On it's stage. opera. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, oh, in a heartbeat, was... learned the, learned the magic of opera. Exactly. 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 Uh, wow. But the funny one of my favorite anecdotes was uh, thinking back now. Of course, about three years later, um, my grandma had already retired, and uh, there was a, a gala performance of Traviata at the at the Serbian National Theater. So she was singing in Traviata, she would regularly sing Flora. Well, in this case, she was just invited as a guest to to come and be there, be present. Uh, and so she took me as her sort of plus one. <laughs> and we were we went into the theater. It's, I think it started at 7.30, a regular performance time. And she said, we're only going to see act one and two, because you know, sweetheart, after that, it gets really bad. And and of course, I can laugh at that now, because I think my first experience was watching you die on stage. What could be worse, exactly. 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 So did did your grandmother, not to ask you to give away too many family secrets, but did your grandmother have a typical mezzo temperament? We know we're told, and it's been my experience, (laughs) that a lot of mezzos are the are they are the really gentle, sweet, nurturing members of the voice categories? Uh, <laughs> the, the sopranos are the crazy ones. What was the, what was your grandmother's operatic and personal temperament like? Oh my God! Well, I felt like 
theater was always present in our house in good or bad way. <laughs> and I, I loved that. I thought that was the most fun way to live and incredibly um, educating entertainment as well. Um, she was, she was a very strong opinionated woman. Um, she was Russian by her heritage mm -hmm. and, uh, she was just a lover of life and a lover of arts and recently she passed away in 2009, unfortunately. Um, mm. but on my last trip home to Serbia, I found some photos of her from, I don't know, early eighties maybe or so, or nineties. And Every single photo of her is being surrounded by people and either entertaining them or dancing. So she was she was always a soul of every single party and a really soulful a, person in life. Once a diva, always a diva, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, if we could do the 23 and Me, because I think a lot of people who meet performers from your part of the world, first of all, because of all the political and geographical changes mm -hmm. and uproar that has gone on in the last 40 years, um, we have a tendency to generalize and stereotype. And so your particular own heritage is what? Part Russian, part Serbian? And part Italian. And part Italian. Part Italian, yeah. You've got all of them. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you were destined for opera, Daniela. That's I all there is so. to it. <laughs> um, but you know, I always think about, I have a very, very close friend uh, in New York City, and she's from Bosnia. Um, we met at Indiana University, and both of both of us were born in Yugoslavia, but we had only met at Indiana University and have continued our friendship through all these years. And for every person that I know from who was born in Yugoslavia, one thing that we always talk about is really being a Yugoslavian. We don't necessarily specify as Serbian, we didn't actually specify as Serbian, as Slovenian, Croatian, or anything. It was more about the spirit of the country that we grew up in, which was Yugoslavia. And, and so whenever we talk about our country, we always sort of talk about ex-Yugoslavia and, hmm. and then point out to countries where we are now from. So in my mm -hmm. case, that would be Serbia. Uh, my, my mother moved to Slovenia after Yugoslavia fell apart, or rather during the the separation of Yugoslavia mm. and um it yeah it's a it's a beautiful part of the world um it's a sort of open invitation to anyone who has never been to really take the time and go and explore because it's it's so varied it's so culturally rich um i i like to say that we have the best food and the best music um and it's it's really sort of a bohemian part of part of the world still in some sense and correct my geography if I'm wrong, but does not one of the borders of Slovenia touch Italy and the area around Trieste as well? Exactly. Slovenia is right between Italy and Austria. And because of that, it was always something of a political football in the Austro-Hungarian Empire because right. Trieste was uh, was the emperor's uh, seaport because Austria exactly. was totally landlocked. Exactly. So you you and your family eventually moved to Slovenia in part to um, escape the, the turmoil that was going on mm -hmm. back home. Um, do you consider yourself now um, a, 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 in some ways uh, touched and uh, engaged by Slovenia as yet another home for you? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I always like to say that I'm 
that I have sort of three homes. So there was Navisad, my my birthplace where I grew up. Then there was Slovenian where I matured. And now there's New York where I've been living since 2012. And um, it's a city that I choose to make my home. Musical education in the in the communist era, whether it mm-hmm. was in uh, the USSR or any of the other countries that were affected by it, is one of the things we hear in retrospect is that music education was plentiful uh, at a very high standard and available to anybody with talent. Was that your experience as a little kid or did you have to wait until you left until really to ramp up your musical education? Um, I started I started music school when I was uh, six years old. Uh, I started wow. playing piano, piano when right? I was right piano. I started yeah. playing piano when I was five, uh, but then I started the formal training in music school uh, when I was six. So f- for me, it happened. They were sort of yes, absolutely. All of the things you've mentioned are are correct. That uh, music education was plentiful. Everybody who showed talent uh, could go to music school. It it wasn't costly. Um, there was support around everywhere and and it was sort of really a, a culture and a country that was infused in music um at, at the same time it was also infused with sports um just <laughs> seeing the number of athletes that we have that are really excellent um we sort of really either went into music or or um sports people but, make a lot of the f- oh go ahead please no no Sorry. no no, no. It's <laughs> um but yeah, for, for me, like I said, I started playing piano when I was five and it came through my grandmother. Um, mm. When I heard Abanera for the first time, I wanted, I was so obsessed with the melody and I wanted to learn how it was constructed and what made it as exotic and as novel sounding to my, to my ears uh, that she then took me, um, put, set me down at a piano and taught me the, um, how the melody went. Um, so that was that was my first um, experience. And you then pursued uh, the beginnings of your sort of uh, collegiate career outside of Slovenia. You went to Austria, correct? Right, exactly. Um, it happened. Let me think here. It was that I skipped a few classes <laughs> and skipped, meaning not sort of I was I was missing them. You but weren't I, truant. I, you <laughs> just were, you accelerated out exactly. of them. <laughs> okay, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So when I was finishing uh, what we call the primary school, which is grades one through eight, mm-hmm. in the eighth grade, which where I was already in Slovenia, I had started my music education at uh, what we called gymnasium. Uh, it's the same principle as in Germany and in Austria. Um, and all of Yugoslavia still had um, these gymnasiums, these high schools that would uh, specify music. So I started my first year of music gymnasium while I was in the eighth year of the primary school. And when I finished, um, we had heard about the Hochschule in, in Graz. And of course, translating it, we thought, well, this means high school, and this is the same level as gymnasium, not really understanding that it was a full-on university. <laughs> and conservatory, uh, right? And conservatory. Uh, conservatory right. was a little bit different. It, it does, oh. it, they do have the same STEM, I believe, mm-hmm. um, if, my, if my knowledge is correct. But mm-hmm. there was a conservatorium in Graz that was not related to the Hochschule. So uh-huh. Hochschule in Graz was really a separate entity from the uh, conservatory. And at the age of 15, I went, I, I did my entrance audition, just sort of 
saying, well, you know, what is the worst thing that can happen? <laughs> and they accepted me at the age of 15. And then once we got all of the information about what my schedule is going to be and my study load and so on, we realized, oh, this is actually university. So <laughs> huh. um, so once again, I skipped, I skipped a few classes from the high school and went straight to university. <laughs> People who come from your part of the world by necessity, because your languages are not as universal as, let's say, mm -hmm. English or even German, uh, are obliged to learn at least a second language. But you seem to be an overachiever in just about everything you do. You speak <laughs> Five and are learning two more. Is that yes. what? Do I get that correct? So, what's your fascination yes. with languages in general? Um, so, I think it actually came from my family. Uh, it started again with my grandmother, and it's a tradition that continued through through our family. Uh, my grandmother, because of her involvement in opera and because she was such a worldly traveler. Um, she spoke a couple of languages. Um, it was German, Spanish, Italian, Russian, and, and Serbo-Croatian. And I always thought that was the best thing one can learn and one can, really one cool, can sort of do. It? It, it's yeah. really amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if you're six years old and you hear your uh, next of kin speaking a couple of languages and not, comp not being faced at all by anything that they may not know or understand, you, you sort of get this idea, wow, this is a superpower. <laughs> so, so it started off like that for me. My mom also speaks a couple of languages, my sister as well. And it started off with this fascination of wanting to follow the trajectory of women in my family that were so fluent in many languages. And um, that, that was the initial sort of impulse. But then the second impulse came when I was a teenager and I was reading a book that was in English. And shortly after, I had read a translation of it in Slovenian. Hmm. And the emotional context that I was getting from reading translation was so different that I thought it would really be amazing if I could learn as many languages as possible so that I can read in the original language of the author and not miss something in translation. Let me ask you a nerdy question that may not have an answer. <laughs> your facility with languages and, and your desire to, as it were, uh, dissect and analyze and make cognate connections between languages to help accelerate your learning process. Did this fascination and uh, extraordinary ability help you when you started to learn how to read scores? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um... I don't know that I have the answer. It's it's very possible that that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, but about learning scores and, and reading through music, one thing that um, it's not my proudest moment when I was when I was just starting out at the piano, but it, it is a reality is that um, once we were forced to practice piano, it was really hard for me just practicing. But what I could spend hours doing was reading through scores. Huh. And and I could sort of my my sister would also take me to the theater and back in those days she had a little Walkman and very bootlegged versions would show up of operas that she would she would go into the opera theater and record. Ah. <laughs> and we would be listening back to those and sort of imitating the singers <laughs> and I was completely obsessed with um Operetta by Emmerich Kalman, the Chardas Fürstin. Sure. 
And so at some point, and I think I was I was six probably by this point, I was playing that bootlegged tape that my sister made so many times on repeat because I just wanted to find all of the melodies that I could on piano. So hmm. even even as a young child, I could I could literally spend a day reading scores, listening to music, trying to transcri- transcribe it. Uh, but what I was not very good at was practicing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, we could go down another rabbit hole because there is the classic Viennese operetta, the things we think of of Lehar and Strauss. But then there's this whole other tradition of the the sort of the ka und ka operetta tradition right. of people like Kalman and others like him right. who have always have that air of the exotic, whether it's Bulgarian yes. or Romanian or Slovenian. Yes. And they always come from they always come from Eastern European. Exactly. You know, what, is Pont- what is Pontevedro? It's probably some made <laughs> oh, up place in his imagination. Absolutely. We did yeah. uh, we did Mary Widow twice. Uh, I've been involved with two different productions. And every single time the word Pontevedro comes, it's it's a discussion that no, this is not Pontevedro. There it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's a play on Montenegro. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And, and then there is a there's that famous chorus in in second act um, with me. Uh, what's the text? Mi velimo da se veslimo. Mi velimo da. That is not. It's not correct <laughs> serbocroatian it's, it, it's sort of gibberish isn't it, it yeah. exactly i mean it sort of takes a couple of sounds from our language from the serbocroatian um what, what used to be called serbocroatian right it mm-hmm. takes sounds and we can sort of understand what it means but it's it's not at all it doesn't say anything <laughs> so to someone who really speaks the language it's like martian it's sort of a mistuned radio of your language more than anything <laughs> exactly else. exactly so you you have this education, uh, this very solid background. You you take a you take a degree um, in Graz, and then at some point you wind up in Bloomington, Indiana, studying <laughs> jazz. How does that happen? <laughs> How does that happen? That's a that's another excellent question. Um, so while I was I I had initially always thought that um, I was going to be a singer. Maybe because of my grandmother, maybe because of the element of being on stage. Uh, but I somehow thought that singing was my way in the world. And I was always interested in collaboration and chamber music and everything. And at some point during my teenage years, while I was studying in Austria, I had joined back in Slovenia, I had joined a band. A funk uh, band, if I recall correctly. A funk band, exactly. If I recall correctly. <laughs> exactly. So we used to do covers of really fantastic music by Jamiroquai, Incognito. Um, who else did we do? Uh, Tower of Power, I believe, is the name of the band. I love it. I oh, just love it. Yeah. So I used to, they, they heard me do, they heard me sing at a festival once in, in our town in Maribor in Slovenia. And it was just a sort of gig that I put together on with a friend and someone heard me and they said, we need a singer. Are you interested? And I said, absolutely. Yes, I am. And it was that when I really say growing up in Slovenia, that's really where I grew up because I was leading these two separate lives of piano performance major um, in Graz. And then I would come home every weekend in Slovenia and I would go and do a concert with the funk band. (laughs) 
So you were sort of a musical superhero, really, just I, hiding well, your hiding one identity, you having one identity <laughs> one place and another identity another. <laughs> so when I when I graduated um, from Graz, I was twenty two. I graduated with my master's in piano performance, and at that time, I had started already my PhD in Vienna in musicology. Um, but again, looking back on on sort of my life as a as a classical pianist, I thought this is this isn't really going to work out. Um, I just don't know what it is, and I made this demo tape of two songs um, where I was singing and playing jazz. And a friend of mine, uh, whom I met, he was a cellist studying at Indiana University. He heard that and he said, "Oh, you need to send this to David Baker, who was head of the jazz studies at Indiana University." And I had no idea who David Baker was. I just oh, thought very that's famous a- jazz musician and pedagogue, yes, right? Absolutely. Right. I mean, brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, but I had absolutely no idea who he was. And I send my tape, um, and next time I came actually to Indiana was as a tourist. Um, so I I met him and I said, "Well, you know, I'm the girl who sent you the demo," and he said, "Well, you and I should talk." <laughs> Wow. And I thought, oh God, he's he's going to tell me never to do this again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're and, a disgrace to the jazz world, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And we met. He invited me to his office uh, for a meeting. We met, and he said, "Well, tell me about yourself." And I said, "Well, you know, this is what I do. This is the training that I have. I really enjoy singing. I really enjoy creating music, collaborating." Uh, being on stage performing and and I just did this because I thought it would be fun to do and he sort of opened the doors and said well it's very obvious that you know nothing about jazz (laughs) 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 but he said you are very talented and I'm curious to see how you would develop so um, it sort of led to me first uh, first I actually ended up having a Fulbright scholarship to go to Indiana as a piano performance and then I ended up getting into a master's in jazz studies at Indiana uh, University. And that was, I'm obviously not playing jazz anymore now. Um, opera has taken, is, is 100% my, my profession. Uh, but the time that I spent studying jazz, I think, is one of the most valuable things that I could have done, uh, especially at Indiana University. How has it informed your music making as a conductor of opera and symphonic music? What are some of the takeaways that you bring into your work as an opera and a symphonic conductor? I think there's a there's an incredible level of inventiveness in jazz, and there's an incredible art of listening. Um, like I said, I was I would always enjoy reading scores, and reading scores is incredibly valuable, but besides that we also need to know how to how to properly listen and through improvisation in jazz i think the the sensitivity of really listening gets even heightened um and what what we would always be told uh when transcribing solos for um jazz piano by by different pianists or even if we went and transcribed a uh, um, miles davis solo one thing that was always said to us was besides the structure and the notes and sort of the line of the solo, always try to understand the emotional context behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really beautiful. I um, 
listen listening to the recordings nowadays if i'm if i'm studying a piece that already has i don't know 15 recordings out there i really go with that mind of thinking what is the emotional context behind the singer making um the decision they made and the conductor making this decision what is how does it all fit into this emotion and is it something that I would like to replicate? Is it something that I can grow out of? Is it something that I can expand? Um, and in, in that style, in, in that way, I think jazz was incredibly valuable. Just also the, the idea of sitting down at the piano and, and sometimes having minimal information in front of you in terms of, of uh, lead sheets where, where you just have the melody and chords and having the freedom to create something that may not be good at all, but just allowing yourself that freedom and allowing yourself to step into creation of something new um, is incredibly important. Our colleagues who specialize particularly in Baroque music are teaching us all the time that uh, if we take a step back, Baroque music was the jazz of the 18th century, mm-hmm. um, and that there, there is less information than you would find in a Mahler score now, and sometimes it's a bass line and a melodic line, and mm-hmm. you figure out the rest. I think one of the most fascinating concerts I ever went to was on one side of the stage of uh, Symphony Hall Boston was the very famous mm-hmm. vibraphonist Gary Burton. And on mm-hmm. the other side of the stage was the Handel and Haydn Society Orchestra, which by then had become a Baroque performing orchestra. And they spent an evening, uh, as it were, trading eights. Oh. And it was fascinating to see the improvisation gift of our young uh, Baroque specialists um, matching against the you know incredible inventiveness of Gary Burton. And I, ha- I have conversations from time to time um, also with singers, particularly, let's say, when they're doing either Mozart or some of the bel canto repertoire, that where, again, it's not all on the page. Mm-hmm. And you've got to bring you've got to bring not only erudition as to maybe how it was done or give your study the treatises to get a sense of where you go. But as you just said, part of creating that that spirit is transcribing the emotion mm-hmm. of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, extraordinary. Exactly. Exactly. So, but but once again, you're you're sort of parachuting in from Mars. You're first displaced <laughs> from your home in Serbia, and you go to Slovenia. Then you move to Austria. Then you come to the middle of the cornfields, and I love <laughs> IU, and we're not far from Indiana University I in Cincinnati. <laughs> but you come to another planet entirely. What were some of your very first impressions of of the middle of Indiana? Oh my God! Well, um, the first impression, and this is. This is this will sound really really snobbish, but <laughs> um, I was I was still doing my my doctoral research dissertation in Vienna when I, I finished my coursework in two years and then I sort of got the Fulbright scholarship and came to Indiana, and I had flown into Cincinnati actually because that was the direct line between uh, Vienna, Paris, Cincinnati, and Cincinnati right. is three hours away from Bloomington. And a friend of mine came to pick me up at the airport in Cincinnati. And we were driving into Bloomington on Saturday night. And I remember seeing the streets with no lights, with sort of nothing. I thought, oh, my God, I left Vienna to come here. What have I done? <laughs> but the next day, seeing everything in broad daylight, it was it was completely different. And I immediately fell in love with the place. Um, the one thing that I, I always think I studied in Graz and in Vienna and I, I really enjoyed my studies and my, uh, my schedule there, my sort of 
progress and how much how what good basis uh, those both of those schools have given me. Um, what I really enjoyed in Indiana was the openness of faculty and of the students. It a hallmark was, of that university, yeah, and that and of the Jacobs School of Music in particular. You're absolutely exactly. right. It was it was just really fascinating that it, you could go to any professor and and all of them are world class musicians who maybe last week were playing a concert at Carnegie Hall or Wigmore Hall or anywhere, and you could just walk to them and and talk to them about music, and it was such a nurturing environment, um, and. Of course, then that's where I also started working more in opera. Um, and the, it was the, the entire experience at Indiana. I always call it my musical home uh, because I, I think it, it sort of shaped me to be the musician that I, that I became. And uh, did you have yet another European idol before coming to settle in the States uh, a few years ago? Uh, how, do, how did we snag you in, in New York? <laughs> So how did you snag me? Um, so after my time at Indiana, I um, I had to go back home to Slovenia. Um, a Fulbright scholarship has a requirement of two-year home residency. Ah. So I had to go back to Slovenia and sort of bring the knowledge that I had gained in the United States, uh, bring it back home. So I started working at the Slovenia National Opera uh, when I came, which was another serendipitous moment um, because they've been looking for... They've been looking for somebody to act as a sort of head coach um, for about a year since they, the year before, they just had a new music director. They had just appointed a new a new music director. And I, again, wrote an email and said, I, am, I have moved back to Maribor from Indiana. And, you know, here's my resume. If there's a chance of meeting, I, I would love to, to talk to someone. And they called me. Uh, for a meeting and for a sort of audition. And within a week, I had landed a job of the head coach at the Slovenia National Opera. Wow. Which was, which was incredible because I had not even anticipated that that would be an opportunity, that that would be a possibility. So I stayed with Slovenia National Opera for three years. And I, was, I worked in all sorts of levels as a head coach and then chorus master, assistant conductor, uh, and then finally, I was also um, assistant assistant music director in some ways, in some administ- administrative points. Um, so once no, again, ahead. you are no. Once, so once again, you're 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 learning the the operatic art and profession from the inside out, from yeah. the bottom up. To uh, you do everything but change the lights when you're the head coach. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And you're working with everything from operetta to, I would yep. imagine, they, were, they did operas that were by Slovenian composers. They did the standard repertoire. They did uh, everything sort of from soup to nuts, right? Right. It was um, it was the perfect, again, perfect learning ground because the the Slovenia National Opera in Maribor, there, there are two in Slovenia, uh, two national institutions. And it, the one in Maribor has had this beautiful tradition uh, that meets the Austrian tradition with Italian tradition. They have somehow over the years uh, have fused that into a very unique style um, in, introducing, in, in introducing traditional pieces and leaving room for, for innovation and creativity. And they, they would always do about eight operas a season, which is not a lot. But when you have a symphonic orchestra that's also playing all of the concerts and when you have a choir that is also 
involved in all of these symphonic concerts and um, who is re- required to do their own personal concert, sort of choir concerts, it ends up being a really full and busy season. And it was, again, perfect learning ground. We would do four new productions every year, and then we would repeat four productions from past seasons. So it was um, it was sort of a mini German repertory house. And as you say, the orchestra of the theater also did its own series of concerts. And one thing we haven't talked about, of course, is your symphonic side, which I would imagine was growing almost in parallel with your operatic life. You've done a fair amount of symphonic conducting as well. Uh, yeah, it was. And and symphonic and, and concert life really came once again out of, out of opera and out of contemporary music. Um, so w- one thing that we haven't addressed is that I never thought I would become a conductor. <laughs> uh, but somehow it's a profession that found me and uh, that I found. Um, and I think it, it all started from the opera and from contemporary music. So again, being being in, in the in that theater um, that does every single repertoire, that does an entire scope of of sort of operatic history, um, was invaluable. Um, and the same was with symphonic concerts that they would do. So is your story the one that we've heard once or twice before? Uh, there is a rehearsal and the conductor doesn't show up. There is a small <laughs> ensemble and nobody wants to conduct. And they say, well, ask Daniela. She'll do it. She'll do anything. I mean, <laughs> how, how did you get a stick in your hands for the first time? <laughs> it was a little bit like that. Um, so the first time I was at Brevard Music Festival um, with David Efron, it was... Wonderful Not teacher. his last fantastic, fantastic pedagogue. And I, I mm-hmm. am so thankful that I was able to work with him and that we're still in contact and and, um, and are able to, to talk to each other and, and just continue our conversations. Um, but David Efron invited me to Brevard Music Festival and we were doing four, uh, four opera, three operas and one operetta that, um, that summer. So the first opera that we were doing was Così Fan Tutte which I had already done at Indiana University in that calendar year. And uh, David was conducting it at Brevard. So he had asked me to play all of the recits. Hmm. And because of that, I was there for every staging rehearsal. And sometimes we would have two pianists. I would be playing uh, recitative on, on one piano and the second pianist would be playing all of the ensemble numbers. Sometimes I would do the entire staging rehearsal but there was one rehearsal where we were doing the first quintet uh, from Act One, and the ensemble was just falling apart. The singers were sort of everybody was in their own land, and David <laughs> was was not there. And so Vince Liotta, stage director, turns around to me. I had just finished playing recitative. Vince turns around to me and he says, "Can you just conduct?" And I said, "Sure. I've never done it, but sure, <laughs> I'll do it." <laughs> And the news then somehow came to David. So the next day at lunch, he told me, oh, I heard, I heard, I've heard you've been conducting. And I said, <laughs> yeah, and I hope I'm doing everything right. I hope I'm not confusing anyone. Um, and so that sort of started this conversation um, of, well, maybe I should conduct, maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. I just, it was something that I couldn't make up my mind for strongly in a really long time until I was put in a position where I just had to do it. And 
um, once I did it, I thought, oh, of course, this is what I need to be doing. I mean, <laughs> who am I kidding? Well, it, as you said, the profession found you. You didn't find yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So you have, um, by this point in our chronological story, um, finished your, your formal education, have really uh, learned in the old-fashioned way in the opera house repertory system of how opera goes together and how you can do it um, in a luxurious fashion, let's say, with a new production or with next to no rehearsal for a revival and everything in between. You're a battle-hardened veteran uh, still in your... <laughs> Still in your 20s uh, with a great deal of experience. And so where does New York enter into the, uh, the, the geography? How, how, do we, how do we have you now permanently in the United States? Right. Or at least this is your main residence. This is my main residence. Um, so it's actually a, a personal story. Uh, before I went back to Slovenia, I had met a boy the summer before in France, uh, a trombone player, a bass trombone player. And we got married right before I had to leave United States and go back to Slovenia. Um, and so for a while, uh, both of us were looking for the best place where we could live and, and mm. both practice our arts. He's a fantastic sure. musician. Um, and the next audition that was available to him was New York City Ballet. So in 2010, uh, Nick, my husband, won, won the job of principal bass trombone of New York City Ballet. And it seemed once, once I could immigrate to United States and once I felt that I had, I had grown to the most potential I could in Slovenia, um, I moved to United, to New York and to United States. Uh, and so that was in 2012. Had, so you guys had a long distance relationship for a while then. Yes, for three years. Oof, you're brave. <laughs> your, bra your bravery encompasses every phase of your career and life. So. <laughs> Thank you. So um, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I've gotten to know you through your work with uh, contemporary opera. And um, the, the occasion for uh, the first invitation to come to work at Cincinnati Opera was maybe at least if you if you look at your resume in the USA a little perverse because I I asked you to come and do an opera written in 1901 by a composer whose feet were firmly still in the middle of the 19th century, um, but as you say, your experience in in Slovenia and your your operatic training in general has been so Catholic that um, Dvorak is as interesting for you as Ligeti. So right. Um, <laughs> Maybe if you wouldn't mind um, talking a little bit about, as you begin to study Rizalka in preparation for your time with us, um, what are a couple of things that captivated you about the score itself? What mm. what grabbed you about Dvorak's greatest opera? Oh, my God. It's it's such a beautiful story. And full disclosure here, before, before you invited me to come to Cincinnati and work on Rusalka, it was an opera that I sort of knew peripherally. So I knew mm. the arias, I knew some of the melodies, but I never studied it. I just, it never fell into my lap. And I never had the urge necessarily to say, oh, this is the one opera I have to go and, and learn right mm -hmm. now. Yeah, Parsifal probably is higher on that list, I would uh, it, it was, <laughs> yeah. But now, hmm. <laughs> Opportunity um, presented itself, right. Exactly, exactly. And it was just... Um, I'm I'm still so fascinated. I find every day as I as I continue to study it and as I continue to live in this world of, of Rusalka, I find it to be such an incredible musical masterpiece. 
um, the my first impression of of dealing with the score was, oh, this is just like Wagner, and it was somehow knowing knowing more about Dvorak's life and his fascination with music of Wagner, it makes absolute sense that that is the style in which he would write. But one of the things that always strikes me with with Dvorak is how um, how much weight his own melodies had, his his own background, uh, the folk songs and the sort of traditional song, the traditional music of people, what a huge impact that had in his operatic writing and in his symphonic writing, and just how masterfully he was able to to deal with that and to sort of mask that in in a classical piece that is just so incredibly authentic and and so beautiful and so emotional and has all of the depth that is that is possible um one of the things that that's sort of stuck out when i was studying the piece is um in rusalka's first aria uh, for instance we always hear the text we always hear the line in the strings but what is very rarely brought out is the line in the two clarinets that's that's the folk melos right there exactly exactly and it's those two clarinets that are shadowing rusalka's line in parallel sixths sixths underneath which then when we come to act three and hear her her next aria her aria at the beginning of act three it's exactly the same except that it's now much more exposed clarinets are the leading voices and it's just full of of Moments like that where you think this is absolute genius. Um, also, Prince being doubled with Celli, and and maybe because my first exposure to to Dvorak symphonic music was through cello concerto, um, I always think of Dvorak as primarily the cello composer somehow, and it's it's oh, not based absolutely. on. I mean, absolutely. it's not based on musicology or 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 any sort of deeper research that I've done, but it's just something that speaks so strongly to me. It's it's absolutely amazing. No, all you have to do is think of the great cello melodies in the symphonies, and also yeah. when when you get to the Dumki Trio, the the most deeply emotional uh, melody is given to the, right. to the cello in that in exactly. That trio. Well, you exactly. hit on something so gorgeous about Dvorak because it's something that I've always loved is that even in the D minor symphony, which was supposedly mm-hmm. his homage to Brahms mm-hmm. and you know the thing that he could write an international symphony mm-hmm. it is still <laughs> infused so much with the music of his homeland and the right. music of right. his 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 ethnic melos as it were right right now you have had in the time since you have come to live uh, regularly in the United States as as we've said you've made a big connection with contemporary opera and particularly with an opera that had its birth at Cincinnati Opera Fellow Travelers mm-hmm. um, the Cincinnati Opera did not commission Fellow Travelers but we were the company that gave the world premiere of the finished work tell us a little bit about um um your connection with the piece and maybe one or two things that um you enjoyed about learning it or enjoyed about conducting it? Because you've conducted two productions, if I remember. Uh, exactly. I have, I've conducted two productions, one by Kevin Newberry, which was the premier uh, production at Cincinnati Opera, and one by Peter Rothstein at Minnesota Opera. And it's, I mean, I, I cried, honestly. My first impression of the piece when I heard it, when I, when I played through it on the piano, I came out of my room sobbing, and I just thought it was 
one of the most beautiful pieces um, that I had encountered. So it was my, my first interaction with the piece and with, with Gregory Spears, the composer, uh, came in 2018 at uh, Lyric Opera of Chicago. And it was, it was such a beautiful mix of some of the veterans um, in the cast who have premiered the piece at Cincinnati Opera and some of the new members, including me, who you know, knew knew the piece through recordings and through stories of it, but I didn't have a, a yet a personal connection with the piece in terms of growing with the process and going through the rehearsal process. Um, and what I always found fascinating about it is how much dance movement there is, how mm-hmm. how many stylistical elements there are that are actually really, really tricky to really to really execute incredibly well it's it looks easier on the page but it's actually to get the right sound and to get the just the right articulation is is really tricky it's it's such a stylistical piece that lives from um that lives from colors and from these incredibly important details um and Every time, uh, well, it wasn't every time that I cried at the end of the performance, that would be wrong. But I always, when I talked to Greg about it, and he said, if at the end of the play out, if you feel like you're crying and there is silence in the audience, that was the right thing. Hmm. And it was just one of the most beautiful sentiments I've heard about the opera. And it's, it's definitely something that I've been striving towards every production and every performance in really achieving that story and and really closing it in in such a beautiful way that it ends on a, um, a dominant chord uh, mm-hmm. like a Sibelius symphony and it just sort yeah. of leaves this air of positivity but also unexpectedness it's absolutely wonderful you know we go back to your love and your affinity for jazz and the improvisatory Mm -hmm. style because Greg has said on more than one occasion that one of the things that drove him in the composition of this piece was his love of the music of the troubadours and the trouvers, the Mm -hmm. incredibly melismatic and improvisatory quality that he very meticulously notates in his music. And so to find that happy medium between making it sound absolutely spontaneous, but also hitting the mark is not an easy thing for a conductor or for a singer, I would imagine. No, not at all. And and to that end, um, Hawk's aria from from Act to Our Very Own Home is, is the perfect example of the troubadour and the melismatic uh, melisma that is that is portrayed both in clarinet in the orchestra and then also hawk on stage uh, but to the end of improvisation and exactness um, I remember reading Schumann's biography the first time when when I was a student and there was a beautiful sentiment that Schumann wrote himself that said my music should always sound as if it was improvised right now and that stayed with me. I was playing David's Bündlatense um, by, by Schumann at that point. And I just thought this is one of the most profound expressions of music that, and I think it applies to all music, not just Schumann, that it's really our, our job, our task sort of, um, to, to make it seem as if it was improvised right now and created right now in the moment. And of course, the only way to do that is to know the piece inside and out, uh, so that we can have the freedom of, of improvisation, of the freedom of time, um, and the freedom of spontaneity. 
Daniela, thank you so very much. We always end these uh, <laughs> it, uh, encounters with a set of, not silly, but a set of questions that we ask every single one of our guests. Um, and so if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to ask you some questions that are a little more quotidian than the high, high flights of intellect we've been engaging. But um, what do you normally have for breakfast? Um Recently, it's been homemade bread, uh, sourdough homemade bread by my husband with uh, one piece with cheese and one piece with jam and some fresh fruit. Um, how do you deal with stress? Um, I usually turn off TV and social media and I engage in yoga and meditation. Um, who is your most important mentor, or if you can't pick one, one that has been particularly important? Oh, wow. Um, I think for for conducting, there were so many fantastic conductors that I worked with and I've assisted. Um, and so I consider all of them my mentors in some way. David Efron was one. Julian Walkner is somebody else that I really look up to. George Manahan. Uh, but... Maybe my greatest mentor in music was my grandmother. Um, and because she instilled that love for, for life and music in me since I can remember. At the moment, what are you reading? Either one book or whatever, whatever's on the nightstand, as it were. <laughs> so I have a few books right now that are, that are circulating through my reading. But um, in a very nerdy way of me, I'm reading Musical Composition by Alan Belkin. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, <laughs> Thank is you. there is there a TV series or a podcast series that you turn to fairly regularly? Um, yes, too many. Um, Cincinnati Opera Podcast is actually one of them. Um, the podcast that I that I like, uh, there is one called Mind Over Finger. Oh yes, uh, yes, it's Excellent. fantastic. Yes, absolutely. And the TV series, I'm a huge fan of uh, British humor. So one of the shows that I regularly return to is W1A on Netflix. Wow. Um, <laughs> like all the rest of us, you have, I'm sure, a mobile phone. Is there an app on your phone that you find particularly useful that has really been of help to you and not just a distraction? Yes, uh, camera. Um, I love taking pictures. I love going out for walks and taking pictures of details that I encounter every day. Um, I also like... Yeah, taking just small pictures of something during the day that is quite unusual or extraordinary. Um, the best career advice that you have ever received? Um, it came from a jazz singer when I was, who was a friend of mine when I was uh, a, a wee young student in, in Graz. And um, she caught me practicing piano for about 10 hours a day. Mm. Yeah, I was oh I was <laughs> I was quite obsessive with with practicing and learning repertoire. Um but so she she caught me at some point practicing still at 10 p.m. at night and she uh she said, "You know, this is great. This is really fantastic that you're practicing and doing all of this." But she said, "Don't forget to live." Mm. And I thought Very that was at, at the time I did not understand it, but um you know, four or five years later, I completely, completely knew what she meant. There was a wonderful interview years ago with Arthur Rubinstein, the famous Polish pianist. Mm -hmm. And the young interviewer said, you know, as you would expect, Maestro, uh, what is your best um, advice for young pianists? 
and he said, don't practice too much. Uh, <laughs> fall, in, fall in love. Go to the yeah. art gallery. Go for long walks. Yeah. Read the great books. So yes. valuable. Yes. Um, do you have a favorite musician outside of the world of classical music? Uh, I have a few, but one that I've been um, going back to listen to a lot uh, is actually Seth MacFarlane. Mm. And it's he reminds me of the old Frank Sinatra classical recordings. Um, and it's really the arrangements of the songs uh, that he records that are just so fascinating and, and full of color and, and full of inspiration. I, I just love sort of listening and going back to that. And uh, last but not least, for our standard questions, um, what is your approach to convincing someone to try opera? If you come across a neophyte or someone you meet that says, oh, I've never been to the opera, that's not for me. <laughs> um, I would say um, join us, first of all. Come, come to the opera. It's a fantastical world of drama, intrigue, love, passion, history, resolution. Um, it's it's a world where you can lose yourself. You can really live with characters. You can live through these stories. Um, you can become somebody else in the three hours. You can sort of envision yourself in Paris in 1800s. Uh, you can turn on your imagination. And when the evening is done, when the opera is done, you're going to come out feeling a completely new person in love with life. Daniela Candelari, thank you so very much. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages.